Hey. Hello there. Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general. Yes, and you can find or follow us on social media. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook, which are at From Skirts to Scrubs. You can check out our Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. And you can go to our website for more information on our episodes, show notes, sources, and more. And that is from skirtstoscrubs.com. To us and leave us a rating and review. And Apple Podcasts is the best place for both of those. You can also leave ratings on Spotify. Well, welcome back. We are back. Yeah. Sorry about our brief pause last week. I'm outing myself on this episode for future episodes um, because we had to miss a week of posting and it was my fault. We had to take a break because I, I took my second board exam last week and I just did not have time. I did not have time. <laughs> yeah, I just did not have time to write the episode. Fantastic excuse to a week, so. Yeah, I that was you. tough. Thank you. Well, we're here now. I am free. There is freedom. And... I'm excited to jump into this topic. So today we're going to be talking about assisted reproductive technology, of which the most well-known type is IVF or in vitro fertilization. And we will be talking about the science of IVF kind of broadly, then going into some of the history and finishing off with where things kind of stand today. But before we do that, Char... I thought I'd ask you, as always, do you want to tell me what you know? Eggs out and like having the sperm and like creating the embryo and then like putting it back in the woman. That's like kind of all I know, to be honest, is like that general idea of how IVF works. I have no idea about any history involved in it, though, or like anything that I'm sure you're going to jump into right now yeah no that is kind of all I expected you to know that was kind of all I knew coming into this too um I did not rotate on REI which is reproductive endocrinology for those of you who maybe are not as familiar um those are the OB-GYN doctors that do IVF and other kinds of ART um but I know a lot of people who did and they really enjoyed it. And, you know, my school has a pretty prolific REI program. So I figured I should know a little bit about it before I graduate from here. Yeah. Valid. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Let's get into it then. Yeah, let's do it. So to start, let's talk about ART in general. And what it means, because when I think about ART and not specifically IVF, I kind of imagine like, so when you're thinking about assisted reproductive technology, like what comes to mind besides IVF? Oh, God, I don't even know, to be honest. Like, That's I don't valid. know anything. <laughs> well, I was thinking even more like basic level of like, OK, if you're having trouble, like, you know, getting pregnant um, I kind of just imagine like a Jane the Virgin situation where there's like a large turkey baster and like sperm. That's, and that's, that's definitely so not how <laughs> that works. But ART, I think, is this newer term. And it, at least it was to me. 
So I thought I'd clarify. It essentially includes all fertility treatments in which eggs or embryos are handled. So this does not include artificial or intrauterine insemination because that is when only sperm are handled, like the sperm get washed and concentrated, and then they are placed directly into the uterus around the time that the ovary releases one or more eggs, and then like they will get fertilized. That's artificial insemination. Mm -hmm. That does not count as assisted reproductive technology because the egg slash embryo is not being handled. Yeah. This also doesn't include procedures in which a person with a uterus will like take medication to stimulate egg production because, again, the egg is not being retrieved. And if there's no intention on retrieving the egg, that does not count as like artificial reproductive technology. Yeah. So you have to either be handling the egg or the embryo for it to count. Yes, gotcha. And just as a disclaimer, I will be using women and people with uteruses slash ovaries pretty interchangeably throughout this episode. And I want to acknowledge up front that women are not the only people that undergo ART, of course, and that anyone with a uterus or ovaries may be considered um, as long as it's in line with their health and they've gotten permission from their doctor. And they definitely do not need to identify as a woman. But I wanted to kind of just make that clear. So IVF does fall under ART. And what IVF is, is a method that involves removing eggs from a person with ovaries, fertilizing them with sperm in a laboratory dish, and then transferring the embryos, the fertilized embryos, back into the uterus of whoever is carrying that baby. So, so I was pretty how does that work? with the description I had. <laughs> that is a very basic and very well put description. Great. So obviously I'm not a reproductive endocrinologist. This is just a general outline of how this works. It obviously involves multiple steps. We'll get into it. So the first step is ovarian stimulation. So first you use medications and you give a woman medications to produce multiple eggs. So for background, the medication is called follicle-stimulating hormone, and it's a hormone that's usually made by your brain that tells the ovaries to start the process of making an egg mature. And as you may know, or maybe not, a female is born, when she is born, she is born with all of the eggs she will ever have. But they're all immature little baby eggs. They can't do anything. They can't, like, they don't have the capability of creating a child in their original immature form. Once that woman hits puberty, each month, one egg will mature into, like, a mature oocyte, a mature egg. And that egg has the potential to fuse with the sperm and get fertilized. So FSH typically gets made by the brain each month and that allows the kind of like forthcoming of one grand egg and that is like the mother egg that is the big egg i love that and in art we give patients fsh to make it so that they can mature as many eggs as possible and have those eggs 
all be potential sites for fertilization. And those would be the ones that would get harvested to be fertilized outside of the uterus. So after you give the woman FSH for a set amount of time, they're shots usually, and you do them for eight to 14 days, depends on what your doctor wants and how you're, how far you are in your cycle, et cetera, et cetera. Essentially, you do the medication and then your eggs are retrieved. So the retrieval of eggs involves removing the eggs from the woman's ovaries using a small needle and an ultrasound machine. And then the eggs get fertilized by sperm in a lab dish that all happens outside the uterus. And the resulting embryos then like get cultured for several days, again, outside the uterus. And finally, one or more embryos are transferred back into the woman's uterus in hope of achieving a successful pregnancy. Super cool. So those are like large level what's going on, which is pretty cool, I think. And so who are the people that tend to require IVF to help them get pregnant? This is like very generally um, a lot of the folks that require IVF are females older than 35 who maybe had some fertility issues females with damaged or blocked fallopian tubes due to scarring or other issues that they had females with endometriosis which similarly can damage and block fallopian tubes and the inside of your uterus females with partners who experience male infertility because of like low sperm or Like they have a blockage where sperm and egg cannot meet. Um, And then, of course, like same sex couples like female couples who are trying to have kiddos. There's this really cute lesbian couple that I follow on Instagram. They're from the Netherlands. They're sharing their IVF journey. I'm loving it. I'm loving following them. They're Hmm. so cute. Uh, And so, of course, like a lot of LGBTQ plus folks uh, really benefit from IVF. And it's been a lovely expansion of this fantastic technology that we have that allows everyone the potential to start a family of course there's a lot of a lot of barriers to it but in theory this Mm -hmm. could be used for everyone so you might be thinking okay so if we're transferring these little embryos how come sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not like we're literally taking them and planting them into the uterus like duh this should be working Well, there are several factors that can affect the success of IVF. And those things include like the age of the female who's undergoing the IVF, the quality of the egg and sperm, the number of embryos transferred, and the overall female's health. And additionally, there's just like lifestyle factors, of course, that play into this like smoking and obesity and other comorbidities or other diseases you might have that also affect Mm -hmm. the impact of IVF. And so if you are being considered for IVF or you want to undergo it, it is a pretty rigorous process and you work very closely with your reproductive endocrinologist to try to make this happen. Um, But it is a journey and a lot of people go on it and have a lot of success and some people don't. But Overall, the science behind it has been pretty sound, and it is really cool to see how far IVF has come, which is what I'm going to jump into next when I talk about the history of it. Diving into the history, IVF as we know it today, of course, did not exist like 
that long ago. Um, it was the 70s that it came to be. But I have I had to look into what it was like in ancient times. Like, what were these people doing? Because obviously a lot of people were having babies, but there's no way that this just started up in the 70s. And that is true. So there are historical accounts. I did. I tried. So there are historical accounts of early attempts at just like general fertility treatments that may have been the precursors to modern day ART, so including IVF. One example comes from ancient Egyptian texts dating back to 1550 BCE, which describe a fertility potion made from crocodile dung and fermented dough, which is gross. Mm. Unclear, obviously, whether this treatment had any actual effectiveness, but it is an example of like early attempts. So people would like take this potion and think that it was helping them potentially have babies. You know, hey, I'm crocodile dung must have been the thing in Egypt. I'm pretty sure that was like part of like stuff they'd use for contraception too. Yeah, which doesn't make sense. Like that doesn't make sense. It's a versatile <laughs> ingredient, apparently, when it comes to reproduction. It's just a catch-all. I don't know why we're not using it more. That's hilarious. <laughs> Similarly, in ancient Greece, it was believed that certain herbs and plants could enhance fertility. And classic, our friend, Greek physician Serranus of, of Ephesus, mm-hmm. lived in the 2nd century CE, wrote about like different plant-based remedies that he used to improve female fertility, which is like, this man's everywhere. I don't even know. In the Middle Ages, there were various methods, of course, that were used, including herbal remedies, bloodletting, of course. And then one that I thought was kind of interesting, they would time sexual intercourse during certain phases of the moon. I know. And you know what is crazy? (laughs) Whenever did a good idea come out of the Middle Ages? Like, literally never. Never. Like, they are never right. But I'm proud of them. So that was, like, not that bad of an idea. I know, I know. But, like, lots of superstition, tradition, we know how it is. It wasn't until the 19th century that more scientific methods of studying fertility began to emerge. So in 1827, the Italian physiologist Lazzaro Spallanzani, sick name, conducted experiments in which he successfully fertilized a dog's egg using dog sperm that had been collected and stored for multiple hours. So like, cool. Don't know how he did that, but like. Preservation a little bit. Yeah, yeah. In 1884, Dr. William Pancoast in Philadelphia performed the first donor insemination using sperm from the medical student voted best looking in his class. Stop. How? How? What was the ego on this man? He was like, I will go I through know. with this. And you know what's so crazy is that... <laughs> This William Pancoast, like, didn't, it was, like, an anonymous donation. Like, obviously, everyone donated, or whoever donated. Like, it just was anonymous what? who the medical student was. And both the husband and wife didn't even know that the donor was, like, a medical student until years later. 
which is like so unethical. <laughs> yeah. I know. Luckily, the husband was like fine with it somehow, but I don't understand. Wait, was it supposed to be the husband? Yeah. I know. That's upsetting. I that know. is malpractice. Would not be okay. Obviously, not be okay. In 1932, wow. Brave New World by Aldous Huxley was published. And I don't know if you have read Brave New World, but in it, it's so it's a science fiction novel. He basically it was really crazy because he actually like very realistically described the technique of IVF as we know it today. And it was supposed to be this like dystopian novel about like this crazy reality and that was going to happen. And uh, actually, it, it is true. Yes. Which is kind of scary because there's things like, you know, The Handmaid's Tale that I'm like terrified are going to actually happen. And I don't love hearing about dystopian yes. novels like becoming real. But Aldous Huxley was right. So five years after Brave New World, so 1937, Two doctors, last names Pincus and Ensman, started isolating an ovum, so like the female egg, fertilizing it in a watch glass, and then re-implanting it into a female deer, like a doe, who was not the original, like, mother. So it was basically like a surrogate situation, and actually was, like, able to have this pregnancy in this animal that had, like, never had intercourse before all the pieces you can kind of start to see are like coming together for IVF yeah they're figuring it out yeah one story that kind of happened around this time that I thought was just really funny is so it doesn't directly relate to IVF but more just like ART in general in the late 1940s this Italian scientist named Piero Donini wanted to extract and purify FSH and LH, which are the two hormones that we use to stimulate ovulation in females. So he figured out that to do this, he needed women's urine samples because that was where you could like find the hormones, which makes a lot of sense because like you check for certain hormones like in pregnancy tests and stuff and it's like all in urine. Mm -hmm. I know that we check for HCG in pregnancy, but like similarly, you can like detect FSH and LH in urine. So he was like, okay, I want to use urine rather than like blood or something to get these hormones. And he also found that the women who made the most amount of this hormone, can you guess, Charlotte, what age of women are making like the most FSH and LH? Probably like young reproductive age women. No. So it was actually menopausal women. Hmm. And it totally oh, wait, makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Is. Yeah. Once I said it, it's like, oh, yeah, yes. it totally makes sense. So. Oh, yes. 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 But now. the science of it doesn't matter. That's like a little nerdy moment. If you know, you know. But like hmm. it was postmenopausal hmm. women or just like menopausal women who were making the most FSH and LH. But what he didn't know was how he was going to get these hormones. So he just like published a book about it and was like, okay, I, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to convince a bunch of women to give me their urine. That's weird. But then 10 years yeah. from then, a dude named Bruno Lunenfeld contacted this dude, Piero. So he had reached out to this pharmaceutical company in Italy called Serono. 
and asked them, this Bruno guy, if he could like start or run a clinical trial to produce these hormones. So he was like kind of using Piero's book and like using his help to see if they could essentially do what Piero could not do, which was gather enough urine to get these hormones. And they were like, uh, like Serono, the drug company was like, mm, I no, like, I don't know how we're going to get as much urine as yeah. you need from menopausal women every single day to make enough to have enough urine to make these hormones. Like they definitely rejected that idea. But this one executive from the company named Giello, Giello Pacelli was the, he was the what? nephew of the Pope at the time. And the Pope gave him the okay to collect urine from hundreds of nuns who were living in Catholic retirement homes. <laughs> so they got so much urine and that's how they collected these hormones. And it like actually worked. Yeah, like he oh gave these hormones. It took apparently the urine of 10 nuns for 10 days to give you enough hormones to induce like, you know, ovulation in a woman and like successfully have a pregnancy. I'm shocked that the I know. Pope approved something that would lead to artificial. But it wasn't, I don't think, maybe it's because it wasn't like artificial. Like there was no, it wasn't IVF. It was just like inducing ovulation, you know, in a woman. Yeah. That's true. But I agree. I mean, I thought it was like very interesting. I was just like, what? This is like fine. Everyone's fine with this. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone was fine with it, apparently. Weird. In 1948, Miriam Menken and John Rock, who were two scientists out of Boston, retrieved more than 800 oocytes from women during operations from just like lots of different like gynecologic surgeries. And 138 Mm -hmm. of those oocytes were exposed to spermatozoa in vitro. And in that same year, they like published their experiences in the American Journal of OBGYN to just like talk about how they went through the procedures and like extracted all these eggs and inseminated them, you know? So that was like another piece of the puzzle is like, oh, how are we going to get the eggs? How are we going to do this? In 1959, there came indisputable evidence of IVF for the first time for the work of Min Chui Chang, who was the first to achieve births in a mammal, so a rabbit, by IVF, where, like, the true IVF thing of, like, taking the egg, putting the sperm in it, putting it back in the the rabbit that was like the first time that they did it from like start to finish and the newly ovulated eggs were yeah fertilized in vitro like grown with a sperm and then put back in and that kind of like started this big gear turning for assisted procreation and in 1965 Mm -hmm. so about six years later Robert Edwards, together with Georgiana and Howard Jones at Johns Hopkins, attempted to fertilize human oocytes in vitro. And they basically between like 1965 and 1978, there were several attempts made 
to do IVF in humans, and every time it just led to miscarriage. So they like kept being unsuccessful. Mm. But the first yeah. successful human IVF procedure was performed in 1978 by that same Dr. Robert Edwards and Dr. Patrick Steptoe. This happened in the United Kingdom. And the procedure resulted in the birth of Louise Brown, the first baby born via IVF. Her mom, Louise's mom, had like blocked fallopian tubes, so she wasn't able to, you know, have babies in the same way like we talked about before. And so Dr. Steptoe used Mm -hmm. laparoscopic surgery to collect her egg. Her husband's sperm was added to a Petri dish. Boom. Fertilization. That was put back in to her and it was successful. So Louise Brown, congrats. Edwards and Steptoe continued their work um, and obviously had like a lot of criticism and skepticism from the medical community, but they just pressed on. After the successful birth of Louise, IVF began, as we know, to gain wider acceptance And in the many decades following, improvements in IVF technology and techniques led to just like obviously higher success rates and births of thousands and thousands of babies. And in 2010, Edwards was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his contributions because of IVF, which is awesome. So then kind of going into like some modern implications Today, IVF accounts for millions of births worldwide and one to three percent of all births every year in the United States and Europe are through IVF. And since it's, you know, founding or conception in the 1970s, IVF egg retrieval had, was originally, you know, very, very originally performed vaginally instead of by laparoscopic surgery. Now it's like by laparoscopic surgery. Um, They also, like with time, started using intracytoplasmic sperm injection after they've harvested the eggs, which basically means that like they inject the sperm directly into the egg using a microscope to really make sure those two yeah, dudes so are cool. in there. They're like, Get yeah, exactly. Bugger. And it actually yeah. really helped men who had <laughs> low sperm counts to become a father to become fathers because it like really made sure that it was happening. Yeah, Cause you're putting the sperm literally in. It's not, it's not the swimmers no, attacking no. each other, racing. There is not that. It is like one swimmer was literally brought on a palanquin into the egg. So that was like 1991. Yeah. So it's interesting because embryo transfers were originally, you know, they would happen on day one of ovulation. Then they moved to day three of ovulation. Now we do them on day five of ovulation, or at least like not ovulation, but like live out of the uterus a little bit longer before being implanted. And we even use now, I've never seen this before, but like live cam 24 hour footage is available to like watch the embryo so you can literally see it like dividing and you can pick the ideal moment for which to implant it back into the uterus. Yeah. And maybe you've heard about this, Charlotte, but there's embryo biopsy techniques where you can now like learn and predict the genetic makeup of an embryo so you can like choose which embryo you're implanting. Mm-hmm. It is very interesting and like very controversial in terms of like the ethics of it. But mm-hmm. what it has shown is that it improves or like that is the attempt at least. It's 
there's been an attempt to like improve pregnancy rates and decrease the number of like miscarriages and stuff by like looking at the genetics to make sure that the genetics are like sound. Yeah, we can also do the, you know, comprehensive chromosome screening. And now we're using like next gen sequencing to really do like a deep dive into the genetic genetics of a baby and see what like diagnoses they might have. So they can like identify really tiny like mutations and things. Um, Mm -hmm. And they have like a pretty high accuracy, like 98% accuracy for these new genetic tests, which is really crazy. But we obviously can't discuss IVF and like ART without discussing kind of the ethics of it, the racial and social socioeconomic inequities that come with them. So studies have shown that black women are less likely to access IVF and other forms of ART compared to white women. One study showed that black women were 37% less likely to use ART than white women despite similar rates of infertility. And this is likely due to multiple factors like financial barriers, lack of insurance coverage, mistrust of the medical system, all very valid things. And then even for those who do have access to IVF, there are still significant barriers and outcomes based on race. Black women are more likely to experience failed IVF cycles and less likely to give birth to a live baby, um, which may be due to healthcare inequities and just underlying health conditions that change fertility. And there's also disparities in the use of certain IVF techniques. So like if genetic testing increases the likelihood of having a successful pregnancy, well, who do you think is having more genetic testing? Not people of color, exactly. And so that's also potentially contributing to these imbalances. So in thinking about all of these things, it is really interesting to think about how far we've come with IVF and assisted reproductive technology in general, but it also leaves a lot of space and questions for where we're going to go from here in the future. So I thought we could pause here and maybe talk about it together. Yeah, I'm down. All right. We're back. Hello. What are your thoughts? What are you thinking? Mainly my thoughts were just like how surprising some of it is. Like one, the Middle Ages thing, like the having mm-hmm. timing your sexual intercourse with the phases of the moon. I know, good for them. Seriously. I want to have a party for them. Like the idea that the moon, yeah, like the idea of the moon is like tied to the menstrual cycle is like a very common like belief or a theory or, you know, idea that people like to follow. And that with that also like timing intercourse to ovulation is also how people get pregnant in general like if you are actively trying to get pregnant then you literally time your intercourse with cycles and stuff so they were like on the right idea which is super interesting like how did they get to that i don't know maybe everyone was synced with the moon at that time so they were like oh my god everyone's pregnant when there's a full moon i don't know but interesting super interesting and then i'm still dead over the fact that the pope approved for these catholic nuns to pee, have their pee collected every day and then I tested. Know. I'm like, I was thinking to myself, like, how how many times a day do they pee? How much do they collect all of it? Were these poor women like calf 
like have a catheter that was like, I don't know. It all? Like they have to like pee in a cup and bring it to the researchers. Like these poor women in nursing homes. What did they have to go through? To I know their pee. Um, it's kind of kind of hilarious in a way, but also interesting. Yeah. Um, so those two things are just, yeah, those stood out to me. That's kind of funny. Yeah, I love that P one. Yeah, <laughs> the other thing that really cracked me up was that doctor <laughs> who used the medical student, the best looking med student's sperm. Yes. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. Yeah. Imagine finding it all the time later. Like, oh, my God. Actually, my child is a child with a random med student, not yeah. their dad. Uh, objectively what? tough. Super weird. Yes. So those are kind of, those are hilarious little points from the history that I was not expecting. Yeah, I also love those. And I think it's fun to find the like lightness in the topic because most of the questions that I have, the other two are are a little more serious because I think there's a lot of social Mm -hmm. implications and ethical implications that come with IVF. And I'm curious, of course, you know, from a feminist perspective, what role do you think the medicalization of reproduction plays in the IVF industry? And I think that's a, you know, kind of complicated question because there is one of those like double edged swords, like two sides of a coin. There's the side that like these, there are these women who are infertile without IVF. Like they would literally not be able to have pregnancies. You see it like all over social media of women who have tried for years and they use IVF and then they're, you know, and then they have a baby or like there's this one influencer I followed for a long time who like didn't try to get pregnant until her early 30s and then she went and got like her egg count checked and it was like oh god that is so scary levels she only had like a a literal handful of eggs she was like it was really really bad and she ended up having a baby via IVF and was like super lucky and it was like a very interesting story to follow so there's like the amazing part of like the medicalization of reproduction leading to these amazing outcomes. But also, I think the sus side of it for me is when the like genetic questions yeah. come into play a lot of people. And I don't know how prevalent this is, but like the idea that you can find like the embryo that's perfect for you, that you don't want a baby that has all of the like a certain medical problem or like has like certain looks to them or like what they're, you know. Those types of things, like picking and choosing your child is like kind of weird and like reminds me of that series that I'm sure every every girl read in middle school called The Ugly. I didn't, but I'd heard of it. And I remember the cover. I just like didn't read them. I know. Well, I'm not cool. Okay. It was like this idea. (laughs) I wasn't cool. (laughs) It's basically the idea that like all humans are ugly. And then when you reach a certain age, they would do plastic surgery on everyone to like make everyone perfect into this like perfect image that everyone would be like shaped to be. And this kind of reminds me of that, but like starting even earlier that if you can like find embryo that's perfect, that's the baby that should be born. And I think there's a lot of issues with that. And also a lot of like disability rights yeah. wraps into that of like, why should someone who has XYZ disability not be given the opportunity to have a life? That part of medicalization is like very hard to reconcile with of like where do those tests lead providers? And like you said, like a lot of the genetic testing is beneficial for like finding out which baby will thrive because like there are babies who, um, fetuses who have these different like diseases that just simply will not. Right. Like chromosomal abnormalities will just cause like miscarriage. Yeah. And like 
to a point, like I completely understand maybe not picking those embryos, but also like, where's the line? Totally. I think is an interesting question that a lot of these like ARIA doctors are struggling with. So that's the medicalization of it that I think is like a double-edged sword, the other side of the sword, I guess. I agree. And I think that ties into a thought I was having just about like the racism piece of things and like the SES parts of things um, and just how inequitable IVF access is in general because IVF is often not covered by insurance. And if it is, it's not covered to any reasonable extent, but it's extremely expensive, especially if you need multiple rounds. Oh, people go into debt. Yeah, people go into debt. Like yeah. Have a baby and I think already. like and a lot of the really questions really that come up about this is this is not me like reinventing any I'm not saying anything profound, but it's the arguments I've heard and issues that have come up are like people saying that, you know, to have a child is like a human right, which I agree with, like to have the right to a family is a human mm-hmm. right. Um, but is it fair to be making it so inaccessible to get that right? Because it's so expensive. Pricing IVF in the United States is quoted $12,000 to $14,000 per cycle. So that's per round of like inducing ovulation and retrieving one, like the eggs from that one is round. And some people need to do, do try egg retrieval like yeah. multiple times. So that's like, that adds yeah. up super fast. And on top of that, like I'm sure there's more money spent on actual procedures and on injecting the egg and like, and then going through the pregnancy oh on God, top of yeah. it, like. It is so expensive. And then my second question is, I think I'm kind of thinking about this like scary future in which women are the vessels of pregnancy, you know? And so I'm wondering how you feel about IVF kind of playing into that or really just any other general thoughts you have about the ethics of this very artificial thing being used for something right. that people call, you know, very natural. Like pregnancy is this like notoriously, oh, it's so natural. It's like this natural process. I think I've even said that probably so many times on this podcast. But in this mm-hmm. case, it's like the furthest from quote unquote natural that you can make it. So how do we reconcile those things? Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it's very dystopian. Yeah. Like you said earlier, that like Brave New World was out here. I feel like I did read that book. I feel like the book where they were like classically conditioning children through like electric shocks yeah i think the fact that that dystopian novel talking about ivf like the idea that you can like create a human and you don't you need the human you need the woman's body right now but if like if medicine advances more and more and you don't need a woman that's an interesting concept it's kind of like the matrix (laughs) out here with everyone in their little baby so true Ah, scary. Um, it's interesting. So, like, do you need a woman to create a child in the future? I don't know. That's kind of interesting and scary. But also the idea of like the woman is just there as like a barren field of yeah. the baby in is like such a throwback. Such an ancient yeah. idea that like you don't the woman's just there to grow the baby. Like in a way, like being a, a surrogate is yeah. a lot like that. That like you are taking like someone else's embryo and putting it inside your body. You have no genetic like ties to this egg, like, yeah. Connection to that baby, yeah. And you are truly just like the woman providing all of these things. Um, it's kind of interesting because it ties back to that idea of woman as barren field, which is incorrect, but I can see how that could be like true in a story of IVF sometimes. So 
is interesting. Like, I don't really know where IVF is going to go, how women's bodies are like incorporated into it. It's very interesting too, but I don't know. I know. I and I guess we'll have to see. But thanks for coming on yeah. this journey with me. Future holds. <laughs> if you our lovely listeners want to continue this journey with us, you should subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating review. Apple Podcasts is a great place to do that. You can also leave a five-star rating on Spotify. And you can follow us on social media. We have a Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all those things. And you can also check out our website for more information, show notes, sources, and merch at homescratchescrubs.com. And lastly, here's to the women who have fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Everyone, see you next time. Very shortly. Yes. See you so soon, friends. (laughs)